For you are no longer a slave, but a son and an heir of God through Christ. This is OutboundLife.org. Amen? All right. So one thing we asked our guys in our program, if someone came to you and you can authenticate it and you knew it was true, and they said that the king of England wrote you a letter that said you are actually of the lineage of the king and you have an inheritance, a title, and lands and authority in England now. Would you be interested in seeking out more information about that? Everybody would. And when you discovered that it was all true, but there was a catch, you had to give up the citizenship of your own country to come to a new one. Would you be willing to do that? Oh, now that causes a different question. But what about my family? What about the people I know? What about all the customs I know? What about the language I know? What about the way of doing things that I know? Well, you just can't have the inheritance if you don't, aren't willing to give it up. You guys are energetic this morning. Two kingdoms collide. So let's look at this from God's point of view. I love this guy. We're going to call him Meph, not Meth. Meph. Mephibosheth. Has anybody ever heard about Mephibosheth? All right, we got two. Great. So I'm preaching the right thing then, right? You don't know. So Mephibosheth is an interesting character. And he's written about in about three chapters of the Bible, so I think it might be a good point to reference. So as I was, something about this story really stood out because it really got me a picture of what the kingdom of God was like and what it meant to sit at the king's table. So Mephibosheth was the grandson of Jonathan, John, or the son of Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of the first king of Israel, Saul. Jonathan and David, the future king, when they were boys, were best friends. They even had the little thing that says BFF that they, would, they shared with each other. They were so close, they were close like brothers. They, were, they, they absolutely loved each other and not in a weird way. They loved each other. But one day, Jonathan saw that David would be king. He knew David would be king. And he protected him from his father Saul because Saul was trying to kill David. Now Jonathan had every right to also want to get rid of David because who would be the next heir of the kingdom? Jonathan. But Jonathan saw something different. So he told David, he said, when you become king, swear to me that you will not forget to show kindness to my house. Promise me you will not forget to show kindness to my house. Why would Jonathan make a promise like that? Because when a new kingdom comes over, it wipes out the leadership and any heir of the old kingdom so they don't have an uprising in the new kingdom. So you can't keep the sons of an old king in your kingdom because eventually that son will demand the right of his own kingdom and a war will break out. So as tradition has it, and as a good, wise kingdom taking another, they would kill the offspring 
and the family of that kingdom or banish them to another location so that they could not cause an uprising in the new kingdoms. It was a clash of kingdoms was about ready to happen. So now fast forward, this promise is made. David is now king and it says that the battle between Saul and David's house, Saul's house became weaker and weaker and David's house became stronger and stronger. Two houses were colliding against each other. David's house, the new kingdom, Saul's house, the old kingdom in a clash. You know, we live in that right now. You see, you're from an old kingdom, but a new kingdom came. That means if a new kingdom came, the old kingdom wasn't the kingdom that God was from. It might explain why things took place differently in the Old Testament. Because it wasn't God's kingdom. It was under the influence of another leader. Jesus' kingdom came in to change that. But back to David and Saul. Two kingdoms. Eventually Saul's house became weak enough and Saul's house was beaten and David took over as king. As David sat on his throne, he said in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, he said, now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You see, in that day, your word meant more than anything. A promise was not something we tell our kids so they won't keep bugging us now and then we'll try to figure it out later? Any parents in the house? A promise was a vow. And your life in that era, your vow meant more than your own life. Because that's who you were, whatever your word was. So whenever the Bible talks a word from a king, it could not be altered. Once it was spoken, it was a decree, it was a law, it was established. So David says, I want to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. How many would love to be the, the beneficiary of a promise? I like being the beneficiary of a promise. Your whole salvation is the beneficiary of a promise that will not be broken. And to show someone kindness is a very interesting word. It does not mean holding the door for him and smiling at him and greeting him, yet you don't really like the person at all. That's just being kind as we use that term. The word kindness is to take you from the place you are and bring you up to the place that I am and make you of like kind. That's kindness. So David said, is there anyone? And, they, and the king said, um, so the servant Ziba said, yeah, there's this young boy named Mephibosheth. But see, here's the problem with Mephibosheth. When he was five years old, after Saul's house fell, his nurse grabbed Mephibosheth and took him and ran to another city to protect him from being killed. And in the journey of running, she dropped him and broke his legs, and he became lame in his feet. Then he had to go live in a city called Lodabar. I don't know about what it was like living in Lodabar, but it didn't have a great reputation, and the name itself just really is kind of a lowering standard all by itself. It lowered the bar. He lived below what he was designed for because he was the heir to the king. But yet everything is gone. Everything that he was born for, everything 
that he had promised to him, everything that would be supplied to him, everything that he was, had had been stripped and none of it was his fault. He was five years old. If you want to talk about victimization, this is a boy that lived with every reason to be a victim of life and to be angry. He couldn't walk. He didn't have his inheritance. He had to live in a land that was not his, and they lived below standards. Kind of like the prince and the pauper. He went to a whole different place. And you know, a messenger comes to him, Ziba, and tells him that King David wants to see you. You know, sometimes when the message of hope or the message of a king or the message of Jesus comes, a promise of Jesus, a promise that you've never seen happen before and you've been disappointed when other people have believed those promises and now the promise comes to you and you you have the right to hold all of those things. Say, well, I just don't believe it. Didn't work for Bill, didn't work for Sally, didn't work for Tom. I don't believe it. I'm going to believe what I want to believe. And you can ignore the messenger. But Mephibosheth did not ignore the messenger. And he chose to come. See, everything in life is a choice. Everything in life is a choice. And everything in life is affected by every choice you make. You affect people around you. You affect things at work. You affect culture. Everything you do in life is caused by a choice. Everything is chosen. That makes you pretty powerful people. Today, you know, you can make choices that could alter your world one way, or you can make a choice that alters your world another way. But you get to make it. It's your right. It's how you were born. Why do we have that right to choose? Because you were born in the image of God. Let that sink in just for a minute. So Mephibosheth comes. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. That means laid flat. has nothing to do with the cancer. He, he laid flat on the... Prostrated. He prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, in a question, Mephibosheth. In other words, what are you doing? Why are you laying down? Well, you're the king and I'm the dog. I'm of this house, you're of this house. But see, David understood what it was like to go from a shepherd boy, an outcast of the family, and be brought to the king's place. His view of life was different because he knew what it was like to be this guy. You see, when you come from your world and go to a different place that God calls you, you become the best resource for everybody else because you know how to get them there. But someone had to choose. So Mephibosheth, he goes, here's your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, my father's sake. Mephibosheth expected to be killed by David. I think some of us, when God has called us or he moved in his heart, it's like, well, great, God's going to do me in on this one. Man, I shouldn't have done that yesterday. Now God's speaking. I've got to go to church, and they're going to sing songs. We're going to hear really bad Thai jokes, and then I'm going to get condemned about what I didn't do. 
but I'll just go face the music anyway and I'm just going to come in and praise God as the dead dog that I really am. And God's, when you walk in, He's standing at the door saying, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? I invited you. Why are you doing that? He said, I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. In other words, Mephibosheth, this isn't about you. This is about the promise I made to your father, and I will keep it, and you will be the beneficiary in the same manner I would treat Jonathan is the same manner I'm going to treat you because of a promise to your father. Now stand up. But you see, with his lame feet, that would be a hard thing to do, wouldn't it? Because he was looking at his inabilities, what's happened to him, who am I, I am nothing, and you know, without Jesus, you are. Until a promise comes. So he said, do not fear. I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore to you, listen to this. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Everything that he once was, was lost. He comes to David, and because of kindness, everything that was once the king's property became Mephibosheth again, redeemed and restored. You see, everything that you thought was a mess of your life that has been broken, he has a way of saying, I'm not only going to redeem you, I'm not only going to go show kindness to you, but I'm going to take all of that, and I'm going to make it a foundation for where you're going to go. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. To eat bread at the king's table is an amazing thing. Listen as he goes on. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant? that you should look upon such a dead dog as I. You see, even when God speaks His kindness to us, when He shares His thoughts to us, it's so hard for our brain not to go back. He said, I don't deserve any of this. Don't you know what I am? How can you use me? And David doesn't even answer him. He just goes and sends Ziba to go get the land for him. And I love how David looked at him. I'm going to restore to you. You're going to sit at my table. And basically to sit at the table it means you become a son of the king. Because the sons sat at the table. What happens at the table is amazing. When you're at the king's table, I like medieval period. Anybody? I love the legend of King Arthur. King Arthur was amazing. But when he had his knights, they formed a table called the round table. 
The reason it was a round table is there was no head at the table. Because King Arthur took his knights and says we're equal. I may have a different role, but who we are are the same and we fellowship at the table. Secrets were revealed. Intimacy was revealed. See, the word fellowship is not just getting together and chatting about the game. The word fellowship is not just joining a small group. You can have fellowship in a small group. You can have fellowship just getting together with your friends. But the word fellowship is not the structure of the thing that you're doing. Fellowship is so much different. Fellowship is two, it's called, it's, you become companions together. You share together. You partake together. What is yours is mine. What is mine is yours. If you hurt, I hurt. If I hurt, you hurt. If you need, I supply. If you have the supply and I need, we share. We fight for each other. There's this camaraderie that binds the whole thing together. And when you sat at the king's table in fellowship, what was the king's was yours. And what's yours is the king's. But it's interesting when the king invites you in, he gets, you, you get the better deal. Mephibosheth offered lame feet. David offered a kingdom. Mephibosheth at the table, people began to look at you differently. And not everybody wanted you at the table. That's why in Psalms 23 at the end, I prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. See, you're sitting at the table and the other people are saying, why is he going to sit at the table? Why is she at the table? I know what she's like. I heard yesterday. But see, at the table, your identity becomes bonded to the place that you're sitting. You're now of David's house. You're now of Saul's house that it used to be. You're now of God's house. So when he says, I go to prepare a, ha- a place for you, I mean, he could build you a house on a hill in heaven. I don't know exactly how it works. But the greater thing that he does is you become part of his house and you have a room where you have an intimate fellowship at the table with him. This is really exciting, you guys. I try not to be passionate about it. But accepting the invitation is a very tough one. Because a lot of us want to do the, well, we've got to be humble. We've got to be humble. You know, it's interesting. The most humble man, it was written in the Bible, Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. And it was written by Moses. See, we've made humility of practicing being low. True humility is accepting the opinion of the master who has the right to speak over you. So if I say you're a son and you're an heir of the kingdom and you say I'm not worthy, you're prideful. Because your opinion seems to matter more than the king's. So the moment your opinion is greater than the one speaking to you, you're prideful. We really don't have a problem of being overly zealous with God's opinion of us. We have a problem with not accepting what he says. And when we embrace it and sell that idea to everybody, that becomes a haughty spirit. 
I know I'm not speaking to anybody in here. I'm just, I'm saying, just so when you hear it, that's what's going on, right? No, but we have to understand that because these, these beliefs and words have been spoken for so long, we don't even know what we are, and we start hearing these promises, but then we filter it through all of our nonsense, and we're like, well, I can't really accept it because, okay, that would be prideful. Oh, I can't do that because Billy, that didn't work out for him when he tried that, so it must not be true. And we start measuring. You know what? If nothing ever happened before, and no one ever healed a blind man until Jesus healed the first blind man, so why not just be the first? He doesn't need three people to have it done before to prove that he can do it. He doesn't, he doesn't try things. He knows things. So with this fellowship at the dining, it's also, it, the Greek word is koinia, or the other word is communion. Communion is a joint participation, a sharing in, a fellowship in spirit and in intimacy, and the real word is tied between a husband and wife getting ready to have a baby, preparing for, the, for that. That's where the word communion comes from. A oneness, a joint, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, united in spirit, communion. So when he says and he talks about communion, which we're going to do today, I want you to connect. He's not saying, come, take your cup, drink, remember, remember what I did, and then go on with your day. He is saying fellowship. Don't just remember, but remember what he did. Remember what he did in me. Remember the relationship that he wants to have with me. Remember what he paid for. Because everything he suffered, it says we share in his sufferings. So if he suffered and finished it, then we share in what he took in that suffering. Because we're at the table. At the table is secrets, strategies, and understanding. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10 says this, But as it is written, eye is not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man. I'm going to preach how I've heard this preached to me when I was a kid. Eye is not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So we just don't know the ways of God. So let's pray and hope to figure out what God is doing. That's not what he says. Because the next part of the verse says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for his spirit searches all things, the deep things of God. Verse 11 and 12 says, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Koinonia means the fellowship of spirit with that person. So if God calls you to communion, He calls you to a fellowship of His thoughts, His ideas, His heart, His mind. He's not withholding anything. He told His disciples, I withhold no secret from my friends. Yet you're no longer a friend. You're now a son and daughter of the King. How much more would he reveal to you? Then listen to this in verse 12. Now. You guys say now with me? Now. When is that? Is that tomorrow? 
Is it yesterday? It's now. Now. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us. He's withholding nothing from you. And in fellowship, we start asking. I don't need to wait to the sweet by and by to know some things. Some things, I just, when I'm really honest, it doesn't really matter. And by the time I get there, I probably won't remember the question anyway. But those things about my heart and his heart and life and what pertains to what he's called me to and all those things, he is eager to share those things with me. That is why he gives us gifts of the Spirit. That's why he gives us these things. Because it accesses those things and our relationship connects when our brain isn't quite working there. And he takes us into those things. But what it comes after leaving the table, once the meal's all done, once you discovered who you are and you look at the one that defines you and you look at the one that says this is who you are. And he shares his spirit with you. He shares everything with you. He believes in you. He values you. He pulls it together. And then when you look at your brothers and sisters from that point, you can now start seeing who God sees in them versus how they treated you in the parking lot when they walked in. You get to see the real thing in them. That's why the spirit of God encourages, uplifts, edifies. The spirit of the devil kills destroys, brings malice, brings hatred, brings division, brings all those things because that spirit can't handle what's going on up here. So it tries to divide the connection between you and God. So it has to try to sever it. But as we stay in it, we start seeing how God values us and all of a sudden a patience and a value because we want those people to come into. It starts changing us at the table. But one thing in the movie... Lord of the Rings, I don't know, is that spiritual? Can I say that? So in the movie Lord of the Rings, my favorite character is Strider. Because I used to be Strider. He was the ranger which went to go do things to help people and he knew he was made for something more but he couldn't see his value of doing it right so he ignored going there. So the sword he carried, the authority that he carried which was in the sword was of a place of an outsider. But then at the table, after the fellowship, he began becoming convinced that he was something more. And he would go and study the sword that was broken, that his father carried, and they remade it. Because he was never destined to be an outsider. He was never destined to be a guy on the outside just doing a few good things in there. He was destined to become the king. And ladies and gentlemen, your destiny is to rule and reign with him. He says that he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. What kings is he king over? What lords is he lord over? You. That's how he created you. That's how he designed you from the beginning. We were just using a broken sword. But at the table, he gives, you a th- he gives you something different, and he says this. I like this. this is... 
I'm going to preach with this. So here's what he says. Jesus in Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for the God was with him. At the table you share in the same. Whatever his spirit is, is your spirit. Whatever he did, you do. Boldly. Because he did it. Because my father did it and I come from the table. Then he goes on to say, regarding the authority of the kingdom, all authority has been given to me. And I'm his body. So the head can't do much without the body, can it? We're not taking his position away. We're not taking his salvation away. We're not taking his lordship away. We're not stripping him of anything. He chose to bring you up and make you a partaker of that thing. Luke twenty-two twenty-nine. I bestow upon you, referring to his disciples, is that anybody in here? He wasn't referring to the 12. He's referring to his disciples. I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed upon me one, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. After the meal, he says this to him: I used to send you out without Garments, without money, without food, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Why? They're under his sword. But when he went, he now was imparting to them to go do what he did. And he says this, Then he said to them, But now, he who has money bag, let him take it. He who has a knapsack, take it. He who has no sword, let him sell his garment and go buy one. Not to go fight people. In other words, you now go in the authority and the confidence of what you just got from the table and you go do what I just did. You go do good and I'm with you everywhere you go. You go bring healing to people and I'm with you wherever you go. You go bring the message of the kingdom and I'm with you wherever you go. Because we're fellowshipping together. I did it for you. Now you can go do it. That's the kingdom. That's what we've done in Thailand. That's what brought us into everything that we did is I just went in what I knew and the authority that was given to me and I just watched how Jesus would do it and I went and did it and it was amazing. He was right there with me saying, good job, son. Sometimes I didn't even pray about it. I just did it because I had compassion for somebody and God showed up and I'm like, God, I didn't even pray about it. He says, you have my heart. God has so much for you. Even in this place, right now, in the things that you're dealing with, a lot of you have come in, but I'm lame. And so when we take communion, you've come in at this place where you feel not qualified, not up to standards. I have nothing to offer. Or a sense of false humility. Well, I just don't want to exalt myself above measure. Trust me, you haven't met the measure yet. His measure is so high, you're not going to outpride him. John 6.54 says this, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is amazing. If he's in me and my heart's moving with him, what problems do we face that he isn't greater than? That puts the spirit of a conqueror on the inside of you. It is interesting that in Acts 13, this mess, or Acts 14, 46, this message came to the Jews. And they were invited to the table as well. But this could apply to anybody. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, why did they reject the word? Why did they reject the promise? Why did they reject the gift? Here's why they rejected it. Because you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Who judged them unworthy of everlasting life? They did. God has not judged you unworthy. He's made you righteous. See, I can't have fellowship with unrighteousness. A righteous man and an unrighteous man can't have fellowship. I can have a relationship with them. Not you, you're not the unrighteous man. I'm using it as my illustration right here. I could have relationship with them. I could be around them. I could be a light to them. But I can't have that intimate communion because light and darkness don't mix. Because what I bond together is what I'm connected to. So if Jesus sits with us and you think you're still unrighteous and you're, taking, you're trying to commune with Him, how can that be? Because righteousness can't fellowship with unrighteousness. And you can't make yourself righteous within the law, so He can never fellowship with us if that is the premise of life. Instead, He came and says, I'm going to put my Son, and by promise, you are now righteous. You are now holy. You are now sanctified in your inner man. Your brain hasn't always caught up with it. But inside, you are sanctified, holy, and your brain is being renewed to these truths. And he fellowships with that. That's why he can live in you, and you're not dead. Amen? That's what comes from the king's table. That's what communion is. So you have your elements in front of you. So I want you to imagine, if you will, I think God gave a bigger loaf last time, but we'll have to just go with it. When he was broken, it says he bore our sins, he bore our sicknesses, he bore our diseases, he bore our mental anguish, he bore our loneliness, he bore our rejection, and all the wrath that was built up because of sin. It said God was pleased to pour it onto him. Why was God pleased to pour it on? Because it had to come out. But he was pleased to pour it on him because he knew he would win. And it's once and forever his wrath is done towards us. He's no longer mad. That's part one of the body. We have healing because of that. 
We have peace of mind because of that. So as you're getting ready to partake, I want you to imagine your fellowship and position at his table. A, a table that John felt so comfortable, he leaned upon his chest. It's an intimate table, and you're there. So Father, we just thank you for your body. We thank you for, for who we are now. We thank you that this was broken so we can be whole. We thank you that this was uh, whipped so that we, we could be free. We thank you, Father, for all that was paid for, and we just receive the wholeness of who you are in us right now. Let's take of the bread. Father, we just thank you for your blood. Not only was it shed to cover our sins, but it was shed once and for all that no more does there need to be another covering. That from the sins from 2,000 years ago to 2,000 years in the future, whenever you're returning, our sins have been covered by your blood. And we are righteous because of your blood. We are righteous because of your promise. We are righteous because of your sacrifice. And we receive that. And Father, not only do we get a covering of the blood, but as we partake of your blood, we, re we remember that we become heirs and your DNA and your blood we are born of you, that we're of a new bloodline, that the curses of old, the curses of our forefathers, the past has been taken away in your blood because we're now born of you, Father. And we receive it as sons and daughters of you. Pastor Joe, can you come up here a minute? And to know the heart of somebody is hard to get to. But I've gotten to know your heart. I've gotten to know what you are. I've gotten to know all the things that go on to being a pastor. It's not an easy job. But yet you love the people that you serve. And for a while, you had operated, and I think you felt like you've been working with a broken sword. And this isn't just something as a, as a token of appreciation. This is something that I really believe spiritually and for your church. There's a new era happening here in this place. There's a new thought process. There's a new place this is going. But God said you needed a new sword. And so this is yours. Let me just charge you with this before I go. There is so much in you. I just challenge you to start letting pieces of it out and watch what it becomes. When you learn a gift, shut your mind off of all the rules about it. Just try it like a baby would learn to speak a language. 
when you see a promise and you've seen everyone around you try the promise and they've tried it and it hasn't worked, you ignore that. They're not your promise keepers. Your father is your promise keeper. And if it has to be the first time it's ever been done in the history of mankind, then so God be it. Let it be. But go out with your boldness and stop letting the enemy tell you what you're not. The Father believes in you and is pleased with you.